Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Know Your Options, the measured risk podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. Welcome back to the Know Your Options podcast, the Measured Risk podcast. And my name is Larry Kreismer, and I'm here today with Jeremy Wallace, and he's with Wallace Hart, a financial firm that he's founded with his partner. And we're going to learn more about his practice and his journey into financial services. So, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Larry. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you started with some large firms, right? Like uh, UBS, and I think it was what, uh, Merrill? Back in the yes, back yes. Day. Prior, yes. Um, so, talk to me about what and where did you, I mean, did you start right out of college or was it something that you did something first and then got sort of bumped over or what, what was the role there? Yeah, sort of the origin story. So I started uh, my career August of 99 in Merrill Lynch right out of school. My experience with the market, I bought, my dad had actually gifted me some stock at the age of 12. So that piqued my interest in the market. Started working uh, as a lifeguard at the age of 16, saved up some money, bought Best Buy stock. I was a teenager at the time. This probably was 97, 98. Um, Best Buy was just coming to our marketplace and wanted to be into the electronic type stuff. I uh, went to college, Emory University grad, and then, yeah, started at Merrill Lynch, August of 99. I uh, spent one last summer. I was a swimmer by background and a swim coach. So I spent one last summer on the pool deck before having to join corporate America, putting on a shirt and tie. And, uh, you know, working working for those large Fortune 500 companies like I did for a while. Um, worked at Merrill from August of 99. Saw, obviously, the dot-com boom and bust. Saw the collapse of uh, um, post-September 11th when we had the 2002 recession. And then I uh, saw the rally from 03 to 08. Left Merrill in um, November of 08 after they went bankrupt and had to be bailed out by Bank of America and the Fed. Um, and then back in 2017, my partner and I left. We wanted to be fiduciaries. We wanted to do what's best for the clients, not work for a large firm, have our own company, have our own brand, and have control of what we were doing. We were in favor of what the Department of Labor was doing at that time, which was pushing for the fiduciary standard, and a lot of Wall Street firms were fighting it. We thought it was best for our clients. We thought it was best for the practice. We thought it was best for the industry. So we wanted to be a part of that, and we didn't want to work for firms that were fighting it. And so then in February of 2017, we left and founded Wallace Hart. Uh, wealth management. So just about four years ago, a little more than four years ago. Six, six. I think we'll probably be coming up in uh, seven. Yeah, yeah, 2017. I think six years was this February, seven next February. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've, you've, um, you've got the foundation built now, so that's great. And is there a particular market that you're, I mean, I, you're in Kentucky, right? 
We are. So a lot of the people that we work with are your pre-retirees and retirees, probably with about a half million to five to $10 million in investable assets. Uh, we mm. do have some business owners who have liquidated their businesses and brought those assets over. But a majority of our client base is your, hey, I worked for a company. I have a two to $3 million IRA, you know, four to $5 million, $6 million net worth, and, and I want to retire. So that's a majority of our client base. Right. Well, I've had the pleasure of being on the Bourbon Trail in Kentucky twice now. So I had the oh, nice. first time I went there first time, then I had to go back for a 2.0 for some remedial education. Right. Favorite? <laughs> which was your favorite of all the distilleries out here? You know, it's funny. Um, it's Buffalo Trace, I think, just because of the uh, Blanton's Bourbon is one of my little personal favorites. And I, it's such an interesting story for me because I, I first found Blanton's in France. I was really? over there traveling and you're in a liquor store looking around and I, I know I wanted, I didn't really want, um, I don't know, something French. And so <laughs> I'm looking around and I see this little hand grenade looking bottle. I'm like, well, that's really interesting with the, with the horse on top. And so we bought that and uh, there was f- five couples traveling together and the five guys finished off this bottle of bourbon in about, I don't know, 45 minutes. It was uh, just delicious. And this was a long time ago. I don't know. Well, a long, long enough ago to be, before the bourbon craze had hit and then came back and started to buy that bourbon and it had just become completely scarce and ridiculous to find and you know, super disappointing. So now I uh, have to kind of move on to something else, but it's great to see the distillery and they still do things uh, very manually. And so it's, it's a, it's been a great experience. I, I recommend it. Yeah. It, it's, it's a fantastic uh, part of the country here and it's, it's always fun to find those bourbons before they blow up or they're put in a movie, I think like John wick and all of a sudden then the, the bourbon blows up and you can't buy it anymore. Um, and that is a great bottle. That's a great bottle to have on your shelf. Yeah, exactly. My father-in-law passed away a year and a half ago or so, and he now resides in a Blanton's bottle on the shelf in our house. Ah, so okay. that's a great place for him to spend you know, yeah, the rest of yeah. his life. <laughs> but back to back to Jeremy and your and your process. So, you know, the fiduciary standard is interesting. It is kind of awkward, I would think, for a lot of the uh, advisors in the role of they're representing a single carrier or a single company and the proprietary products. So, yeah, I think uh, and I applaud you for making that step over into the fiduciary side. We were we also went fully independent and left the broker dealer space in 2017. So we're in the same time period independent, but we formed our RIA back in 2007. So we've been in that space for a little bit longer. Um, now you do your own proprietary portfolio construction or do you use a TAMP or what, what process? Did no, you we do bring? it ourselves. We do it ourselves. And we have two, two solutions that we offer to clients. One is in, in our belief, it really goes back to having lived through the market declines in 2000 to 03 and then 07 and 08 and haven't been at Wall Street at that time. We embrace more on the technical analysis side. So what we found was that when we're at these large institutions with supposedly the best research on the street, no one was jumping up and down screaming sell as the market's walking into a 50 to 60% decline like we lived through. And what we realized was it was really upon us to try to figure that out for our clients because that's what our clients thought that we did for them was to proactively reach out to them and say, hey, we're coming up on some difficult economic times. We need to make some proactive changes in your portfolios. And it wasn't what we ended up coming to the conclusion was it wasn't that it was Wall Street was doing anything malicious. It was really the way that Wall Street is set up. And I always tell everybody, imagine if Warren Buffett 
or Jamie Dimons or whomever you want to use, if they go on CNBC or the Today Show and they say, hey, you know, we're really concerned about the economic conditions of the U.S. economy. We've actually liquidated all of our portfolios and we think you should do the same thing. And if that ever happened, it would not be good for the U.S. economy and it would not be good for the financial market. No. Uh, it's the reason you can't walk into a uh, into a movie theater and scream fire. It would cause a stampede. It's the reason that you always see Jamie Dimon or Warren Buffett when we're in the middle of some of these turbulent economic times. They're always going on TV saying how they're buying more and how they believe in the American dream and how they believe in the American economy. All of that's fantastic when you have an indefinite time horizon. <laughs> But the clients that we work with, they want their money. They want to retire. They don't want to see a 30 to 50% decline in their portfolios like we had in 2000, like we had in 08, like we had in the COVID drop and we had the subsequent bounce back, um, what we've been going through here recently. So what we realized we had to do was find a way to proactively take our clients to cash to preserve their portfolios. And we use technical analysis for that. Um, so it's a very simple equation. We just use the moving averages of the markets of the S&P. If the market is above the moving average, we're in for our clients. If it's below the moving average, we go to cash just to preserve and to protect what they have. The whole point of doing that, I think it was um, saw it on a website once, a great stat, which said 83 of the worst 100 days of the market's performance are when the S&P 500 breaks the 200-day moving average. So if we can, all that we can do is step to the sidelines and raise cash when the market enters a vulnerable state, we've done a really good job preserving our client accounts. And that's what our clients are looking for us to do. Um, so we talk to them about how we do that. We show them with a chart of how we do it. We show them that we're not always right. There are times that we'll sell a week later, we'll buy back in. Four out of five times when we go to cash, it's a non-event. But when we do go to cash, and it's the fifth time when it is the event, like we had in 2022, clients are very happy that we're proactively doing that for them. Yeah, makes sense. And is this something that you have any you know, aspirations to offer to other advisors? Or are you, are you having a, you're building out your own practice and that's where, where you're comfortable? What's your, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, so not really. Uh, we do that tactically with ETFs. What we've actually offered, the, the other element of this that came about is we actually launched a hedge fund back uh, two years ago, the Wallace Hart Momentum Fund. So that went live in June of 21. And it really came from the market conditions in 2020 with COVID. So going back into 2018, we had a sharp V-shaped sell-off quick recovery in 2018 in the fourth quarter. And what we found was our current strategy was good, but it couldn't take advantage of the ability when the market had a sharp sell-off to go back in and pick up stocks at a lower price um, when we have those V-shaped recoveries. So when COVID hit, my belief was at the time that the market conditions of 2022 were going to be the market conditions of 2020. And what I mean by that is when COVID first happened, I thought we were going to have a, a 20 to 25% sell-off in the market as we tried to figure all that out. The Fed injected a lot of capital into the markets and the markets bounced back and recovered quickly. So that didn't happen. But what I thought was going to happen actually ended up happening in 2022. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to offer a solution to our client base who are more sophisticated and to the institutional and private markets um, and to other advisors if they wanted to talk about that was the origins of the old hedge fund, which was the zero and 20 fee structure. So what we actually did was we created a solution where clients only pay us if they make money. 
Now, as advisors, we can't do that for our client base, but we can do that through a hedge fund. So we actually put a zero and 20% management structure into the hedge fund. And then we offer that as a solution to our clients. We can do things like we can actually tactically go to cash like we do with our traditional strategy, but we can actually put a short on in the market and we can actually add a mean reversion system into that as well. So when the market has sell-offs, we're able to pick up stocks, see that, uh, see those stocks revert back to the mean and then exit out of those positions when the market gets to an oversold condition. So that's one of the things that we've actually brought to the market here in the last two years. Um, and we're building that out as part of our practice. Um, how about technology? I always like to kind of touch base with people and see what they're using for practice management. Do you, can you give me a rundown of like your top uh, fintech or you know, CRM or how that integrates with maybe financial planning software? Do you, I assume you do financial planning as part of your role there? Yeah, we do financial planning software. Money Guide Pro is who we use. Um, our custodian is actually Raymond James is who we use. So Raymond James provides that solution to us. So we're able to integrate with all the clients' accounts. So the beauty of, the, of what we have right now is our tech deck is really provided by our custodian. We don't have to do a lot on the third-party side. We do use Bill Good Marketing as a software platform and as an integrated CRM. Um, so that's something that we use. We do a lot of communication to clients with like letters uh, around major holidays and major events. We send out birthday letters to clients. We send out anniversary letters to clients. And that's the Bill Good Marketing system that we use. And we also, they integrate with our notes. So that's who we use for our notes system as well. Um, yeah, we, we our performance reporting is included from our custodian. So that's one of the things that we don't have to worry about. We don't have to use a third party software like a black diamond or a Tamarack or any of those. So it is provided for us. Um, so that's interesting. So when, when you left, uh, was it UBS was your last yeah, UBS, location? correct. Right. When you, when you left there and you're looking around the universe, uh, that was 2017, right? Correct. And you, you know, Fidelity, Schwab, TD Ameritrade are kind of the top three. Um, but I guess did Raymond James, stand out as the sort of the all yeah, in one solution yeah. or the it was it was so we talked to you name them we talked to them we talked to wells we talked to fidelity schwab td as you alluded to we talked to dynasty focus hightower we talked to everybody and what was interesting was all of those didn't have an all-in-one technology platform it was we're your custodian and then you have to go out and manage and bring together the tech deck and manage that outside with raymond james it was the exact same as leaving a wirehouse but with 100% payout and being an RIA. So we had access to all the technology. We had access to all the research. We had access to the financial planning and we had access to the um, performance reporting. Then we pay maybe a couple hundred bucks a year or something like that for the financial planning software. So from the relative cost standpoint, it was much more efficient to custody with them. Uh, we've never run into any issues where that's been an issue for a client or for ourselves and the performance and the data and the custodian has been, has been great. Um, so when we looked at Fidelity and when we looked at Schwab um, and TD, it was, we had all of those were additional features we had to go and find on our own. And we, so we decided from our standpoint, we didn't want to have to do that. We wanted the all in one, it was provided to us. So leaving the wirehouse world and going RIA, it was very similar. We were used to everything that we had um, on the wirehouse side. And, and it was a seamless transition for our clients as well. Yeah, no, that sounds like a really good fit. Actually. It's, um, our firm started, both my partner and I started in the in life insurance business first. That's our training and okay. sort of risk, risk shifting and then financial advising. And then we started to realize that the 
sort of third party money managers were getting the lion's share of the revenue, frankly, and uh, our advice and our allocation models were going to really determine primarily what the client was going to earn. And so we made the decision also to start using ETFs and those kind of models uh, to sort of take that control back in. So it was interesting to watch the, uh, watch the progress there. So tell me about um, a little bit of um, just personal life. I've just recently become a grandfather. You're a, you're a father, right? Still too young That's to have correct. grandkids, yeah. I assume, right? Yeah, three uh, kids. Uh, so we started school this week. So this is the first. They went back to school on Wednesday. Today's a Friday. So this is the first first day. I have a 16, 14, and 10-year-old. So I have a junior, freshman, and a uh, fifth grader. So my daughter plays volleyball. My son plays football and lacrosse and swims. And then the youngest plays uh, football and baseball. So my daughter, we started the college search, which is fun. Uh, my wife and daughter went and did that early a couple months ago. So yeah, uh, being a junior, we're starting that whole college search process, which is, yeah. which I, as, as you know, being a grandparent, I'm sure you can remember when your kids went to that college point, you're sitting there thinking, how the heck has this happened? Life goes by fast. <laughs> no, it's true. It's very true. It goes by very fast, Mike. My dad gave me a great um, analogy or a visual about life in general is that he said that, you know, it starts out like a big roll of fresh toilet paper and you pull off the sheets you need to get your business done. And that toilet paper rolls a certain speed. And as you start to pull more and pull more and use that roll, the same amount of effort is making that thing spin faster and faster as it gets down to the end. And that's what life feels like as you get older, just, you know, a a year doesn't take a year to go by anymore. And it takes, you know, it seems like a fraction of a year. Uh, It's a funny perspective change. So yeah, that definitely happens. But so the kids, um, you were given, you know, let's say a stock portfolio or a couple of holdings by your dad. Have you done the same thing for your kids? And it's funny. I, I heard a, uh, someone at a conference once say this. It's like, you know, you buy your kids all these trinkets and all these toys and you buy them stuff. And then six months later, they're not even using it. So I think it was during COVID when we were at home. Um, I, I said, hey, look, you have some money in an account. I want you guys to research and find some stocks and buy them. You know, it's interesting to see how uh, my son, who was eight at the time, was sitting there trying to process what's going on. And so here's an eight year old thinking this through. He's like, "Okay, well, there's hot. There's a lot of sick people because of covid. We should invest in hospitals. Right. Just to sit there and think of how their their brain works at their age. Uh, My son who's 12 was 12 at the time. And now he's uh, 14. You know, that pre driving uh, speed type thing that all kids at that age wanted. So he wanted to, own right. Tesla. you know, he wanted to own Tesla. He bought that's that. a good taste of volatility. So that's good. Right? You know, yeah. That'll, yeah. That'll be yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, the, the kids, when Roblox came public, I said, Hey, look, you know, you play this game. Would you want to own it? Um, so they owned it. It had a nice run. We took some money off the table when it started to break down, but trying to give them stuff that they, the, the old Peter Lynch from the Fidelity Magellan days way back Buy what you know, <laughs> My daughter, you know, she bought Target and Microsoft and Lululemon. So those were the products and the companies she was going to. And those were the things that she bought. So, so we do, we do. And then every once in a while, my son will send me a text like, Hey, Tesla's done this or done that. And I'm like, yep. Or, Hey, it's gone down. I made money cutting the grass this summer. Can I buy more? So it's interesting just to sort of see what they like to do. So it is, it's also, and that's what actually got me interested in the business, you know? 
Larry, you and I get yeah. to remember these days. And if you're under our age, if you're young, uh, this analogy won't make sense to a lot of people, but you remember opening up the paper and you looked in the business section and there was the ticker for your stock and you had to go research and see what it did the day before. Right. So every morning you open up the paper and you're like, did my stock go up and down? So the idea of not knowing what your stock did on an instantaneous basis or being able to learn right. market it on your phone. I know it's foreign to some people who are listening to this, but, but we're not that yeah, far no. when that happened. You used, to, you used to not be able to know exactly. I think there was actually probably a little bit of peace involved in that. It was just the advisors who knew what the hell was going on and the average client didn't. But I think so. I'm actually really. Advisors, yeah, advisors, things, yeah. Yeah. Ahead, yeah, advisors sorry. and clients, right? But I think what I'm interested in, you know, you think about giving back and stuff. And I know you're involved in a philanthropic, um, aren't, aren't you part of a, a we do. pledge or some sort yeah, of Yeah, we do. So we have the pledge 1%. So what we do is we pledge 1% of our profits to some uh, um, organizations here that we're all passionate about. So what we do is we tell the firm, we tell our employees at the end of the year, hey, this is, this is the amount of money that we have to allocate. <laughs> let us know two or three causes that you're passionate about. And then we send a check to those businesses. So things from the local Lexington dream factory, sort of like make a wish, but a local version of that. Um, We've had the Carnegie sell it center for reading my uh, business partner. His wife was in the school system. So it helps underserved youth with uh, reading literacy programs. Um, We have uh, our assistants in the equine world and she likes riding horses. So it's, it's broken down thoroughbreds or horses that have been, you know, sort of set aside. There's a rescue mission for them. And then uh, actually I made some donations to MicroWorks and his organization trying to get some more technical people into the field. Because Larry, I'm sure you, you've had this conversation with clients when you talk to your clients and it's like, what do they need? They need workers. And it's like, where's the where's the white collar? Jo- There's plenty of people to fill the white collar jobs, but it's the blue collar jobs, the laborers, where it seems like um, we need a lot more of those people going forward over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I think there's actually been a potential disservice that really, honestly, not every person isn't is is appropriate for college or for some uh, you know technical de- degree, and there's a tremendous amount of labor that needs to be done uh, that is perfectly reasonable for trades and uh, can make a very good living at it. So, right so now. On the, on the- and one last yeah. thing on that point now with chat GBT and all this AI type things, it's not the white collar. It's it, the blue collar jobs. Now it's like you sit there and work with my kids. I'm not as worried about those blue collar jobs going away mm-hmm. work with their hands, but those white collar jobs that we all sit there and we think being an attorney, being a CPA, all of those type of things, writing legal briefs. Now I know that they're working out the kinks, but those are things 10, 20 years down the road that we might not need as much. It might no, be- no, I don't, I'm not even sure it'll take 10 or 20. I mean, this, what, yeah. what that rule is about the speed of technology doubling and processing speed. I think, you know, it's just going to come online and be a, be a total game changer. You know, the, um, the area that I think is interesting, particularly with your background and what you're doing with your children is the area of financial literacy. That, that is something that, personally it's just a terrible job in, in in america and i think honestly globally in helping people even have a, a sense of what it means to be financially independent or at least understanding that if you start early enough almost any financial capacity you know you can achieve some some level of independence but not if you wait till 55 to start you know then you've just got right. it the monster of time on your back that you'll never be able to carry across the finish line. And this idea of having, um, you know, an impact on young lives and getting them to think about this. There was a, a little, I don't know, a little short video came across my Instagram thing. And it, it was a great synopsis of, you know, typically 
poor people below, below, you know, certain economic level, they buy cheap stuff. They just buy lots of cheap stuff. You know, that's the, that's a thing that they do. Middle-class people start to get more expensive stuff, but it's still just stuff and wealthy people, people that ultimately become wealthy buy things that generate income and, and pay them. And it's that simple. We can just get that message across. I think at a young age, particularly, that it, 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 and particularly now, my gosh, with Robin, I don't know where you put your kids' accounts or you know how you can do these things, but you can invest in fractional things where you know thirty five dollars or nineteen dollars or something, you can open up an account and get started. That's really a tremendous opportunity, I think, to to move the needle, um, both you know domestically and globally. That I think would be an awesome thing to, for all the whole industry to focus on and try and make it more of a. You know, commitment in the schools, you know, we get to, I think even any any 18 or 19 year old might even have a difficult time writing a check, like physically writing a check. Just some basic, basic stuff like that's amazing. Um, so on to uh, personal things. So you are uh, in, I think I read in your bio that um, you've got a passion for the Cubs. Is that yeah, yeah. So my uh, my parents were from greater Chicagoland area. Grandparents lived there. Um, I wasn't born there. I was actually born in Cleveland. Uh, um, lived in Chicago for a couple of years before getting my dad was transferred down to Lexington. But but now I'm 46 years old, so I came home every day for people that remember this, uh, turning on WGN. And if you wanted to watch sports after school, there was only one thing to watch, and it was the Cubs and Harry Carey and Steve Stone broadcasting. So it's amazing how many people you run into are Cubs fans who never actually lived anywhere near Chicago or didn't necessarily have a tie to the team. Very similar, actually, to, to the Southeast here, a lot of Braves fans being able to watch them on Turner. But, um, yeah, so came home every day and would pretty much turn on the Cubs, uh, you know, in Chicago when we lived there and then in Cleveland when I was born up until the age of eight. And, yeah, I love watching the Cubs. I had the pleasure of being able to go to one of the World Series games, actually had a ticket in the stadium. Yeah, and then uh, play golf. So my wife actually a heck of a golfer. She's an XD one college golfer. So my goal is always to post a lower score than her. And in the shoot, how long we've we been married now? Eighteen years that we've been married. I think I've been able to do it once. So not not very successful at that. Okay, well that's off. That's, that's beyond the golf course. Yeah, that's awesome to have a partner that's that's uh, you know pressing you and challenging you. So that's awful. Or I mean, awful. It's awful. Awful good. Uh, it, it was you fun. Know. I mean, there was a lot of celebrating at the pool afterwards. I was I was buying some beers for everybody, and we were we were celebrating like I had won uh, you know the Masters that year because it had never happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Golf is such a fickle thing. I mean, you think about the sports like basketball or. You know, any any high moving sport where there's a fast moving ball, even pickleball for gosh sakes, you know, there's a lot of a lot of noise and sound and stuff and tennis and tennis is kind of more quiet as a crowd, but golf is ridiculous because the ball is holding still, the crowd is quiet, nobody's moving, and that that, that stupid thing is still so hard to do effectively. Hard to no, it's just yeah. just You're incredible right. how difficult it is to execute and how how rare it is for people to be able to even get near par, let alone, you know play competitively so right now I, I i remember being a younger player in my 30s and 40s and getting out on the golf course and you know mostly either for a charity tournament or something or maybe entertain some clients and invariably within six holes i'm just like i'd rather be at the office i'd rather go back to the <laughs> <office>. <laughs> they have a better control of what's happening in the office than i do out on this golf course so that is true okay I think I've uh, softened up a little bit as I've gotten older and just more appreciate being outdoors and, you know, spending time with people and not so much worried about what the score is. So that's correct. That's important. 
Yeah, we're all lucky so, our day jobs and our livelihood don't depend on our ability to hit the white ball on 100%. it all. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, the the business has been evolving and we've we've seen, you know, different products come online and, um, you know, levered products, inverse products, managed futures. Do you, uh, like, embrace any of those things or do you think they're, like, uh, weapons of mass uh, financial destruction or how, what do you, how do you feel about some of the new No, I think they're great. They- so, like, you know, a lot of how I actually got into the trend following and technical analysis world was through CTAs and managed futures. Um, I think, though, the correlation of this, I think it really goes to the sophistication of the client and what a client's comfortable with. So I I think the more sophisticated endowments, pensions, institutions, family offices are a lot more comfortable with those than what I typically call your traditional, quote unquote, retail clients, your clients with, you know, one to five million dollars in assets and and even less than that. Um, Things like and I know you guys are focused in the options and, and you'll talk a little bit about that. It's interesting, though, because when we first launched our hedge fund, we went to our clients who were accredited individuals and said, hey, we're offering this solution. And they're like, a hedge fund? Isn't that more risky? And we're like, oh, well, actually, if done correctly, we can actually really lower the volatility of everything because of the way that we can do it through a hedge fund and solutions that we can offer that we can't traditionally offer to non-accredited individuals or investors. So it's interesting. It's more a public perception issue. So I think all of those things are fantastic. And I think what it really comes down to is, is um, how much time and energy do you want to spend educating your client base on something that's new that they're maybe not comfortable with versus offering solutions that they're more comfortable with and trying to find the solutions that are right for the, for the education level of the people that you're working with. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, you're right. Our firm does kind of specialize in the options and the use of options and trying to gain exposure to, to markets. I was always fascinated that, you know, I got my series seven back, you know, when dinosaurs crawled and it's, it's a huge part of the test and the exam is based on options. And then I got into our, you know, pass the test and get the license and go set about trying to learn some more stuff. And really the super, the supervisory people above me at that time, this is back in the, let's say uh, early nineties, they just said, Oh no options. That's not anything you want to spend any time on. It's too, too complicated. You know, let's just put that aside. And what I really came to found or came to find is that it's, it was really a lack of understanding about what it can do. Um, and it use of options can be tremendously aggressive and levered and, and have tremendous amount of speculation. But the fascinating thing about the option contract is that that same contract from the seller can be just the opposite, extremely defensive, highly hedged and, you know, the exact opposite trade. And so that's what really, it's almost like holding up a mirror. If you're, if you're facing it at an aggressive person, they're going to have an aggressive position, but the person holding the mirror on the other side isn't. And the experience with an option contract is is potentially going to um, influence somebody with their first experience with an option contract. And if they happen to, fall on the right side of the outcome, they can feel very positive. And if they fall on the wrong side of the outcome, they can have a very negative uh, feeling about the actual thing. Uh, but that's it's not the option's fault. And the option just acts as a contract. So, Right. No, you're right yeah, about appreciate that. that. People's experiences yeah. are directly correlated if, to, if they made money or not, if they like a solution. If they made money on it, they're more right. open to the idea if the first time they tried something out and it didn't work out. Uh, they right. cut it off and they say it's way too risky, even though the perceived risk is probably much higher than what the actual risk is. 
Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about this conversation earlier today. You know, like it seems like a perfect in investment would be something that just makes you like, you know, the classic, uh, almost the Ponzi scheme bait 1% per month, no volatility just moves right along and, and it makes it 12% per year. But even that, you know, you have to, you have to uh, premise that, you know, against the backdrop of what else is available, right? Because if, if treasuries are paying 14, then that thing isn't very attractive anymore. <laughs> and if the S and P is a 22% annualized rate of return over the last 10 years, then your 12%, you know, steady eddy is just going to pale by comparison. So it's always funny to just sort of gauge what a client's expectation is and then help them kind of baseline it against something. I, when you do that, do you have different benchmarks that you kind of set up for expectations or is it the S and P 500 or do you do custom blend? within your own practice? Really? So for individual clients, it's really related to their financial goals. And that's so much about what we're trying to look at. Because the one thing that we always try to talk to people about on that side of the equation is, look, if you can get to all of your goals and objectives with having 100% of your money and something that isn't going to fluctuate in value, why don't we do that? You know, Now, when interest rates were paying zero and cash was paying zero, that wasn't an option. But what's been fascinating is now as our client base has aged and moved into their later 60s and early 70s, what we've noticed is how we've drastically increased the percentage of cash in portfolios. Because if I can get a 5.5% um, government-backed money market, why open it up to the risk of the bond market with fluctuations as interest rates continue to go up in value? So really what we're doing is we're getting the alpha on the stocks and the technical analysis, and then our fixed income portion is just bonds and paying at five and a quarter. Part of that also goes back to my experience with the credit markets post uh, pre-2008 that actually led to part of the implosion. Um, anytime Wall Street comes up with something that's a little bit higher on the yield side, usually that doesn't end up turning out well. There's like a back-end potential misery for anyone who's in the business that remembers the auction market securities that were supposed to be these 99-day maturity, but with a seven-day redeemable value. And then Wall Street all of a sudden stepped away and said, well, we're not redeeming them. And clients were sort of stuck holding the bag. So anytime Wall Street comes out with something exotic or or new, I try to stay away from it because it's going to implode. It's just a matter of how and when. And I don't want my clients to partake. But, um, yeah. but to your point, I mean, if you're able to get these... So, so that's what we try to do is we try to provide the alpha on the stock side and then the cash... <laughs> is really there and we would we would use ultra short duration bond funds just to lower volatility. So that's what we do for our clients. Yeah, it's uh it's a good model. I mean we have a tremendous uh actually a really large allocation to treasuries, US treasuries, short treasuries like yeah. a year ish or, or less. And really that objective there is just not to lose money. Uh, and it was interesting too because you know we went through this little uh, like we have had obviously different um periods before where the budget crisis will come along and there's some, you know, maybe some posturing about having the, having the U S government run out of run out of cash. And even with that, the treasuries that we own that were maturing within say two weeks of that deadline that was approaching, they had virtually zero impact, maybe a basis point, you know, decline as they head toward maturity. So we really have to kind of look at that and say, if there's a, problem with treasuries then we need a higher allocation to guns and ammo because that's going to be that's going to, that's going to be the allocation that's going to save the day in that environment but seriously all kidding aside 
Yeah, as as we face a rising interest rate environment, and as we have, you know, as you said, flooded a tremendous amount of capital into the markets, do you have any clients that are raising concerns about, you know, the the U.S. ability to pay that higher interest rate freight, and what what kind of impact that's going to have on the budget and the, you know, the tax liabilities and that kind of thing? Is that coming across the you know, the wire to you guys? Every once in a while it does. And I, I think one of the things though, that we try to do for our clients is tell them not to worry. And, and you hate to say this, but don't worry about that stuff. Because mm-hmm. one, you can't do anything about it. And two, let us worry about it. That's why you've hired us. Like you enjoy retirement. You enjoy your working or you enjoy doing what you do and let us worry about those things. Actually, I had a conversation with a client yesterday and she's like, you know, I'm so concerned about the election this has to be one of the worst times we've ever had with this upcoming situation. I said, you know what? I actually wholeheartedly disagree. This is no different than what we've been through in 2008. We had the work right in the middle of a political election. We had the financial crisis where we didn't know if we we're going to be able to get cash out of our ATMs. Now this predates me. My parents lived in Chicago during the 68 uh, elections and they were telling me about the riots they were having downtown. And so I said, Everything that we're living through, it just seems that right now, because we focus on it so much and we're living in it, it seems so much worse than what it was. But in 2011, right, wasn't that when the debt downgrade happened? And if you go back and look at the price of the market relative to what the debt downgrade was from AAA down to AA, um, the market is a heck of a lot higher than what it was, what it is today and then versus what it was in that uh, August of 2011. And so I think from a client standpoint, I think what our job is to do is to make sure that we reinforce this to our clients all the time. You have hired us for this role. Let us worry about that stuff. And if there's something that is happening that we need to do, we will tell you and we will communicate that to you and we'll take action for you or we'll have a conversation about what we need to do. You enjoy life. We just so happened to go down this career path and that's why we're worried about this stuff. And you've hired us because you need help with it and you don't want to have to worry about it. So go enjoy, you know, Larry, go enjoy playing with your new grandkid, hanging out with your new grandkid and let someone else worry about it. Let us worry about it. And I think that's the part that we try to push on to clients so much is, is let us, you know, my hairline, I'll look on the video here. I've got a lot more gray hair than I did from 10 or 15 years ago and the hairline's receding. And that that's because we're worrying about those things for our clients or our clients don't have to. Yeah, there's this, there's a tremendous amount of uh, confidence that comes with time and wisdom. And I think you, you can get the education on financial services in a relatively short period of time, a couple, maybe 18 months, 24 months. You probably will know as much as you need to know, let's say scientifically. And in the next five, 10, 15, 30 years is where you start to apply that as a practical knowledge and start to get comfortable with it. And, and at the, the part, the thing that the role, I, I very much agree about not worrying about it, but it's almost as important as the, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the Dalbar studies about investor performance versus uh, investment performance. Mm-hmm. And I think one of, one of what I focus on as our primary role with clients is to make sure that they actually stay in an investment long enough for them to receive the investment's long-term return. And, and that really is the case because you're right. If you look at any given time on a long-term equity chart, you're going to find steep drawdowns. They happen not infrequently, and they can get as bad as you know, 30 40 50% over a period of time. And if a client doesn't stay with the game, or at least in your case, you're, you're you know, attempting to exit and then get back in, these are all designed to try and stay the, stay the course and stay with these investments. And that's how you get a long-term rate of return. And the biggest, the biggest challenge I think clients face is just um, chasing the new shiny thing. 
and trying to avoid the pain of what's happening in the moment in order to, you know, jump over somewhere else. So I agree. That is that is the, the role we play is to focus on that long-term goal. And if you get lucky enough or smart enough or to have the right experience, then you, you can get to a point where, yeah, you can achieve your goals on safe money, uh, which would be great. Or you have so much capital relative to what your lifestyle is that you can you can actually take a lot of risk uh, because even a bad outcome on the risk won't impact your goals. So those are two interesting places to be. Correct. So as we get toward the end of this uh, conversation, is there any anything you've been like any product or service or a thing that you'd just be like, gotta be great if that existed that doesn't exist yet or something that you've you know, always kind of wanted that you just haven't had time to produce or build. Now that I can think of, you know, the part, the part, Larry, when you talk about what we do, which is managing risk for clients and actually being proactive and, and doing strategies that are different. And then you run into somebody who um, works with a person who's like a buy and hold or just doesn't do anything for them or is, I always wish that there's a way for us to get our message out to more people that need our services because what we're trying to do is we're trying to combat a little bit of the buy and hold. Don't do anything. And we're managing risk, but we're trying to fight an industry that is talking about asset allocation, always staying invested. Don't do anything different except those 40 to 50% drawdowns. When you and I both know from a math standpoint, if we can help avoid a portion of that big drawdown, how much better the portfolio looks. And so the part I would always love to do is how, how can we actually get that message out to more people so they can benefit from the services that we provide instead of people not knowing that there's an alternative solution out there that they're, they're not made aware of. Um, so if you're ever able to figure that one out, that's when we can, that's when we can have some really great conversations. Yep. Keep talking, keep having a conversation. So on, on clients, if there happens to, I mean, this is again, a sort of advi- for advisors by advisors podcast, but if a client or a retail client happens to be, but poking around and found, found us is that are you working with clients uh, in Kentucky proper? Or are you open to clients all over the country? Yeah. Majority of our clients are actually out of state. So um, mm, majority okay. of our client base is out of state. So we work with clients all over the place. Uh, we have international designations as well. I think we have clients in, I think they're in Australia now. They were in New Zealand. Um, we've worked with clients in England. We have one in the UAE. So we have clients all over the place. So we're open to working with anybody anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And then honestly, too, the other part I think that we can maybe do that's a little bit more unique is is the hedge fund offering that we have. We can actually tweak that to customize so that other RIA firms could have a white label hedge fund that they could offer as a solution to their clients um, that separates them from from your traditional people. So that's something else that's out there that if anyone would ever want to talk about, we'd be happy to talk about that with them as well. Great. Great. Well, listen, Jeremy, thank you very much for spending some time with us this afternoon or this morning, depending on when you're listening and uh, wish you well in the growth of that hedge fund and with your practice. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate the time. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.